Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So who is Paul speaking about here? Well, we know from chapter 9 and the start of chapter 9, he's talking about his Jewish brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he starts out chapter 9 saying that he has great sorrow in his heart and unceasing anguish. And he goes on to explain how how his Jewish brethren are not saved. They're not born again because they've rejected Christ. They never received Christ. And they chose to continue in the law and in works righteousness. And because they have rejected Christ, they ended up crucifying Christ, which was all a part of God's grand master plan from the foundation of the world, that Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And it was always God's plan that Jesus would die for all of humanity. And in chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is painting this grand masterpiece of God's grand master plan of salvation for mankind. Because God never ever wanted mankind to have a relationship with him through their own self-righteousness. God always wanted mankind to relate to him through his righteousness which is perfect righteousness. And so this is what God has chosen before the foundation of the world. This is God's election. God hasn't elected certain people for salvation. God has elected and chosen and predestined. Grace is how we get saved. That salvation comes through grace alone, and it comes by faith. And so Paul is laying this all out in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so he starts out chapter 10, reiterating what is in his heart. His heart's desire is for Israel. He knows that God hasn't cut off Israel, hasn't rejected Israel, that God actually still longs for Israel to be saved. And if they were to have faith in Christ, they would be saved. And so Paul is continually praying for Jewish people to receive Christ. And and once again, It's very clear in verse 1 that universalism is not true because Paul, who is the apostle of grace, I mean, he understood the new covenant and grace probably better than any one of us and any of us will ever understand it. He had a profound revelation of grace and, and the gospel. And he says here that he wishes his prayer is that Israel would be saved. Now, if everybody was saved, if universalism was true, then Paul is out of his mind. He is completely missing it, praying that everyone would be saved. And you can try to twist this and say, oh, no, this salvation, it's just talking about blessing. It's just talking about healing. It's just talking about the benefits of salvation. No, Paul would not have great sorrow in his heart and unceasing anguish because his fellow Jews were not being healed, were not living in the fullness of the blessing of salvation. No, he had anguish because they were lost and on their way to hell. And this is what vexed him and tormented him. And he said he was literally willing to give up his own salvation if it means that the Jews could be saved. And so that's it's not talking about a little blessing, a little bit of healing. That's speaking about heaven and hell. And you simply cannot deny that. And so when Paul says, my prayer for them is that they would be saved, he just proved that universalism is not true. Not everybody is saved. You need to get saved. And this is literally the whole point of Romans, is that 
There is a righteousness that has come from heaven. It's come from God. It comes through Christ. It's the righteousness that comes through grace, but it can only be received by faith. And anyone who has faith in Christ will receive this righteousness and be saved. It is as simple as that. But the problem with Israel is that they never received Christ. They were currently living under the law covenant, which is a flesh covenant because it's based on our flesh and the performance of our flesh. It's based on our works. What we must do to earn our righteousness and to earn salvation. And so Paul here says in verse two, for I bear them, speaking about Israel, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so Paul says Israel has this zeal for God, has a passion for serving God, but he says it's not according to knowledge. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. So they're pursuing the law and a righteousness that comes through the law, and they think that that's what God wants, but actually it's not what God wants. And this basically sums up all religion. Religion is all about what we must do to make ourselves worthy for salvation. It's all about humans trying to earn salvation by our performance, by our works. And all the religions of the world are about that. And it's all ignorance. And there's a lot of people in religion that are sincere, that are zealous, that are passionate, that are striving, that are doing their absolute best. And yet it's all ignorance. What they're doing is not based on knowledge. It's not based on the truth. It's not based on what God wants. And so Israel is passionately striving to keep the law and serve God. And yet Paul says that is not based on knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. And verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This sums up religion, works righteousness, religious performance. Jesus never came to bring more rules. He came to bring us into a relationship with God. That's why Christianity is different to every other religion in the world because every other religion is about what I must do in order to ascend into heaven. But Christianity or the gospel is all about what Jesus did where he descended from heaven. He came and he qualified us. He did what we couldn't do and he gives it to us as a gift, which is grace. It's a free gift that we cannot earn. And all we do to receive it is, is to have faith in Christ. It's to submit to the righteousness of God. And so Israel, they hadn't submitted to the righteousness of God, to this free gift of righteousness. They were still trying to earn it. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that's the gift of righteousness. That is the perfect righteousness of God, because our self-righteousness is imperfect righteousness. It's an inferior righteousness. And in fact, it is no righteousness at all. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. And so there is only one kind of righteousness, and that is God's righteousness. And the only way that we can become righteous is if we receive God's righteousness as a gift. 
You cannot earn it. You cannot make yourself qualify for it. You don't receive it through your birthright. Israel doesn't receive this righteousness because of their birthright, because of their pedigree. Israel doesn't receive this righteousness because of their works in trying to keep the law. This righteousness, which is God's salvation, which is grace, which is a gift, can only come through faith in Christ. And so Israel, being ignorant of this gift of righteousness, they went about to try to establish their own righteousness. And Paul here is saying that is useless. That is insufficient. That does not work. That will not save you. And this is so important. In fact, this here is the very essence, the very heart, the very core of the book of Romans. It's the core of the gospel, which is there is nothing that you can do to help God save you. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. You cannot be righteous enough. And to think that you can earn salvation by your righteous works is ignorance. It's zeal not according to knowledge. And in fact, it is an insult to the cross of Christ. It's to take Christ down off the cross. It's to bring Christ up out of the grave and to undo the resurrection. It's to undo the death and the resurrection of Christ. If we could earn salvation by our works, then Christ died for nothing. It is only by grace through faith that we can be saved. And then you'll have ignorant Christians, God bless them, but they'll say things like, doesn't the book of James say that faith without works is dead? And so their conclusion is, in order to be saved, you've got to have faith and works. But that is not what the Bible says. That is not what James is saying. James is not saying that salvation without works is dead. He doesn't say that. He says faith without works is dead. And that is a huge difference. In fact, that is an eternal difference. That is a heaven and hell difference. Because if you believe, that your salvation is dependent on having faith in Jesus and your works, then you believe that you are the one who helps to earn, to keep, or to complete your salvation by your works. And I'm telling you now, that is not the gospel. That is a mixture of law and grace. That is a mixture of faith and works. James says, faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not genuine faith. Now, he's not talking about the works. You've got to keep the commandments. You've got to keep all the law. In Acts chapter 15, James himself shows us and he tells us that that salvation is through faith alone in Christ and that we're not going to put the heavy yoke of the law back on the church and on the Gentiles because even the Jews couldn't keep the yoke of the law. And so they had that whole Acts 15 Jewish council Because there was a rumor going around in the church saying that you cannot be saved unless you keep the law and are circumcised. And so the church got together, including James, Paul, Peter, to discuss this. And the conclusion was, no, it is only by faith in Christ that we are saved, not by works. And so what is James talking about when he says faith without works is dead? He's not talking about religious works to try to earn, keep, or complete your salvation. He's talking about corresponding actions of someone who has faith. Those actions will show that your faith is genuine. For example, 
If I'm lying on a beach and someone comes to me and says, hey, have you not heard the news? There's been a massive earthquake out in the sea and it's created a tsunami. And now there's a tsunami coming to this beach. It's going to hit in 15 minutes. You better get out of here. Now, imagine if I said to him, yes, I believe that. And then I just continued to lie on the beach, kept sun tanning, you know, would you say that my faith was genuine? Did I really believe what he said? No, I didn't because my actions didn't correspond to, to what I was saying, to my faith. But if I heard what he was saying and I said, oh my goodness, there's a tsunami coming. I better get out of here. And I got up and I ran and I got out of there and I went to safety. You would know that my faith was genuine. I really believed what that person said because I had corresponding actions. And that is what James is talking about. He's talking about the genuineness of faith. If you have faith in Christ, then you will receive Christ. You will submit to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. And so your corresponding actions will be that you don't go out to try to keep the law and offer animal sacrifices in order to be saved. No, because you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're saved through faith in Christ. And so this is the corresponding actions. And what I've just said, all of that lines up with Romans chapter 10. The Jewish people didn't have faith in Christ. And you could tell that by their corresponding actions. They were going about seeking to establish their own righteousness. And then verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is such a powerful verse. This is one of the most important verses in the entire book of Romans. In fact, in the New Testament, a lot of Christians have not seen this verse. They don't understand this verse. They are ignorant of this verse. They do not have knowledge of this verse. For Christ is the end. And when you hear the word end, you should hear explosions going off, nuclear bombs going off. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law for righteousness, that is earning your righteousness. That is trying to fulfill the law in order to be righteous. That is talking about works righteousness. That is us trying to help God save us. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to earn my salvation through my works. God, I'm going to try and keep my salvation through my works. God, I'm going to help you complete my salvation through my work. No, no, no. Christ is the end of all of that. And this, this really is an awesome verse. What this verse is showing us is that all God is looking for is our belief, is our faith in Christ. That's all God wants from us. He doesn't want works. He doesn't want us to promise that we're going to be good for the rest of our life. No, no. We're not saved by the promises we make to God. We are saved by believing the promises that he has made to us. And so this is actually so simple. It's so simple. It takes a religious person to mess it up, to confuse it. The gospel is actually very simple. The only work that God requires is that we believe in his son, in Jesus. And so this is the truth. And we actually need to submit to the truth. And we need to let go of our works righteousness. We need to stop trying to 
earn our salvation. And a lot of Christians, they like, oh, no, I don't believe we can earn our salvation. No, no, we have to. We, it's just through faith in Christ. But then they will literally believe that now that you are saved, you have to maintain your salvation. You've got to keep your salvation by your good works. And that is not the gospel. That is error. That goes against what this is saying, what this verse is saying. Christ is the end. He's the end of law for righteousness. It's over. Once you believe in Christ, once you have faith in Christ, you are born again. You are saved. There is no process of salvation. You are either born again or you're not. There is no process of salvation where by your works, you complete your salvation. That is not the gospel. That is a mixture. That is a distortion. That is religion. And the reason why religious people, even the church, teaches those kinds of things is because they are ignorant. They haven't seen their salvation. And they're afraid that if you tell Christians, oh, it's just by faith, then they, they're afraid that Christians are going to run out and just sin. Or if you tell Christians that they're born again, that they're saved, when they believe in Jesus, that's it, they're saved, then what's to stop them from just running out and sinning? If, if salvation is not based on our works, whether good or bad, then, you know, Christians might just run out and just start sinning. But that reasoning is based on fear and it is based on unbelief and it's based on ignorance. And so they want to use fear to control Christians. Hey, if you don't perform right and be good and do all the good Christian things, then you might lose your salvation. And so you need to be afraid of losing your salvation and that fear will cause you to live a godly life. And that is absolute garbage. That's religion. That's not empowerment. That's not truth. Bible says the truth will set us free. And I want to base my life on the truth, not on fear, not on twisted scriptures, not on ignorance. The truth is when you get born again, a miracle takes place inside of you and you receive God's nature. The old you, that old Adamic you, that was dead in sin and under the control of sin and the flesh, that you died, died with Christ. And God raised you up into a new species, a new being. And he's given you, a, you have a reborn spirit and you have a new nature. And that nature is God's nature. And so you've come alive in the spirit. And so now holiness and Christian maturity is not about trying to keep the law. No, it's about walking in the spirit. See, we don't try to teach Christians the thousand steps of how to not walk in the flesh. And you've got to be careful you don't walk in the flesh, otherwise you might lose your salvation. No, Galatians says, Galatians 5.16 says, whoever walks in the spirit will not gratify the flesh. And so this is what we teach people this is what we teach believers, how to walk in the spirit, how to walk in the realities of what has happened to you in Christ, how to walk from your reborn spirit, how to walk in grace, which is the spirit covenant, and how to walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. See, this is maturity. This is holiness. It's living from who you already are in the spirit. And see, grace speaks to the spirit because it is the spirit covenant. Law speaks to the flesh because it is the flesh covenant. It's all about empowering the flesh, stirring up the flesh, trying to get the flesh to strive and to work and to keep the law. But grace is all about the spirit. 
It's about God's ability, God's empowerment. And so grace speaks to our reborn spirit. It speaks to our inner being and it empowers us to walk in the spirit and to be who we are in the spirit. Religion speaks to the flesh and it gets us to try to strive in the flesh and it gets us in fear. And because of that fear and because of that guilt, we're striving. But, but grace gets rid of guilt. It gets rid of fear and it awakens faith and it awakens our new nature. And so we don't preach a mixture of law and grace. We preach grace. The true gospel of grace will actually empower believers to live for God and to walk in the spirit and to do extraordinary things. And so also you'll have a lot of ignorant Christians that try to convince the church and believers that they're still under the law. Oh, no, yes, we're saved by grace, but we're sanctified by the law. And, you know, the law hasn't passed away. And because of grace, we can fulfill the law. And, you know, they'll quote all of these scriptures out of context out of context with the new covenant, and they will try to convince us that we're still under the law. But this verse says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the, he's the end of the law in our life. And Galatians chapter 3 confirms this. It says, before Christ came, before this faith came, we were under the supervision of the law. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ to lead us to faith. And Paul says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that we're in Christ, we're under the supervision of faith. And this scares some believers. They're like, well, if you take the law of Christians, well, what is to restrain them from just going out and just sinning and living a life of sin? I'll tell you what's there to restrain them. Faith. Faith. Faith in God, faith in what has happened to them, that they're born again. They believe in Jesus. They have faith in Jesus. They, this faith has brought them into a relationship with Jesus. They can now be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk with the Holy Spirit. That's what's restraining them from just running out and sinning. See, the law actually didn't restrain Israel from sinning. People still sinned under the law and people still sin under the law. Law is a license to sin. Law, trying to live under the law isn't a guarantee that you're going to stop sinning. And so it's foolish, it's ignorant to think, no, we must keep the law on Christians because that will stop them from sinning. That is so inferior. That is so powerless. The law is just the shadow. Christ is the substance. What the law couldn't do Christ has done through his death and resurrection. And anyone who has faith in Christ is united with Christ in his death and his resurrection and has been born again into newness of life, into a powerful life, into a spirit-led life, into a faith-filled life. The righteous shall walk by faith. I'm getting excited, but this is the truth. When you have faith, when you believe in Christ, when you're born again, and walk in the spirit, and you walk by faith, that's our supervisor. That's what's supervising us. And there will be corresponding actions. I don't want to just run out and live a life of sin. Why? Because I know God. I believe in God. I have faith in Jesus. This faith has brought me into a relationship with him, and I can live close to him, and I have a new nature, a brand new born-again nature that's full of God. That's what's stopping me 
from just running out and living in a life of sin. And so when you haven't seen this, when you haven't seen your salvation, when you haven't seen this supernatural mighty miracle that has taken place on the inside of a born again person, then you think and you will believe that you still have to put the law on Christians in order to restrain them, in order to sanctify them. But that is nothing more than ignorance and it is a zeal that is not based on knowledge. And so I don't need the Ten Commandments and the law of God to restrain me. I have God's law in my reborn spirit. It's my new nature. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the nature of God. No one has to tell God, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Why? Because that's not in his nature to do those things. And he's put his nature inside of me. So I don't need an external law saying, Ryan, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet, you know, don't blaspheme. I don't need that on the outside. Why? Because on the inside, I've got God's nature. And, and those things are not in my new nature to do. And so a part of walking in the spirit is learning how to live from my new nature. And what helps me to live by my new nature is faith. I need to understand what has happened. I need to believe in the miracle that has happened. I need to believe in what God says about me now as a new creation being, the truth of my identity in Christ. And the more I have faith in that and understand that and believe in that and have knowledge of that, the more I will actually step into it and walk in it and live it out in my life. And so I'm not going back to flesh and religion and striving and works and it leaves such a bad taste in your mouth and an acidic feeling in your guts because you're never doing good enough and you're always falling short and God's always disappointed and you're always carrying around guilt and shame. I'm done with that. Christ is the end of all of that. Now the righteous shall walk by faith. And so what Paul is saying here is that Israel is completely missing this. They're still stuck in the law. And so they have not submitted to the gift of righteousness. They're still stuck trying to establish their own righteousness. And so verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to live by the Ten Commandments and by the law, you have to keep them all. You have to fulfill all of the law. That's what Moses said. And Paul, in Galatians 3, verse 10, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so this is what Moses was saying. This is what Paul was reiterating. That this is what the law says to you. If you're going to try to relate to God and be righteous through the law, then you need to make sure you keep every single command of God perfectly and you don't break any of it. The moment you break any of it, you're cursed. Cursed, condemnation, judgment, being cut off from God. And so the problem with the law and the law covenant is that there is not a single person alive who can fulfill the law. No one can keep the law perfectly. And to think that you can is just ignorance and it's complete self-righteousness. Because if someone was to go through your life and analyze your entire life, every single moment of your life, every decision you've made, every act you've done, every thought that you've thought, 
if they were to analyze your life under a forensic microscope of the law, they would uncover incredible sins in every single person's life, even those who appear like the most saintliest of people, because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no one righteous, not even one. And all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's those who are trying their hardest to be righteous by the law. Their righteousness is like filthy rags. No one has kept God's law. And so that's what the law demands. If you're going to try to earn your righteousness before God, then you need to make sure you do it perfectly all the time and never, ever slip up, not even once. Because as soon as you do, that's it. You're lost for all eternity. You, you're not saved. You can't be saved. You've blown it. And so that's a bad deal. I don't want to have to be saved through my works. And that was the whole point of the law, to show us our sin, to show us our inability to be saved. And it was to lead us to Christ. It was to point us to Christ so that we would realize we can't save ourselves. We need a savior. And that is what Romans chapter 3 is all about. It says, for, the, for through the law, no one will be justified in his sight. And that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That was the purpose of the law. And then in Romans 3, it says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. That is the righteousness that is not based on the law, even though the law and the prophets pointed towards it, spoke about it, but it's a righteousness not based on the law, but it is a righteousness based on faith to all those who believe. And so thank God for grace and for the gift of righteousness because no one can earn it. And if you want to see how amazing grace is, you really need to elevate the law in someone's life because someone who thinks that God requires them to keep the law and who thinks that they are able to keep the law, they need to see just how impossible it is to keep the law and how brutal the law is to those who don't keep it. See, if you're living under the law and you don't keep the law, the consequence is death, eternal destruction. And that's what Paul's doing here as he's quoting Moses. It's actually what Jesus did when he ministered in the earth. He actually elevated the law and he shined a spotlight on people's hearts because on the outside, people thought they were keeping the law. Jesus shone a light into their hearts as he elevated the law to show them that though they might be keeping it on the outside, they were breaking it again and again on the inside. For it has been said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who lusts in their heart has committed adultery. And so a lot of the religious people, they, they would say, well, I haven't committed adultery. And so they were ignorant and fooled to think that they were keeping the law. So I must be righteous now because I'm keeping the law because I haven't committed adultery. Jesus said, no, in your heart, you're committing adultery and God sees that. So you're breaking God's law in your heart. And so self-righteous people need that because they need to see that they're actually not righteous. Their righteousness is filthy rags. And when you see that, then and only then will you run to the Savior. Will you reach out to receive the Savior? I cannot save myself. I'm in danger of the fires of hell, of the wrath of God. I am actually not right with God. I'm cut off from God. And I think that I'm right, but I'm not. And it, the law brings that awareness of sin so that we will actually reach out and receive Jesus and put our faith in Christ and be born again and come into a glorious relationship with God. 
And so Paul here is contrasting the difference between law and grace, between works and faith. And so under Moses and under the law, you have to keep the law perfectly, even though it's impossible for anyone to do. But then under grace, under faith, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And so the righteousness that is based on faith, it says, do not say who will ascend into heaven, because that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, into the underworld, because that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And I believe that this is speaking about works and performance and things that we can do. If I can ascend into heaven, then I don't need Christ. That is to bring Christ down. And I believe it's speaking about to bring Christ down from the cross. It's, it's to nullify the cross. It's to empty the cross of its power. We could not ascend into heaven. That's the whole point of Christ needing to die on the cross. Because only through him and his gift will we ascend into heaven. And who will descend into the depths? So it's actually speaking about Hades and those, the souls of the unrighteous who are in Hades. Who will descend into the depths and rescue the souls in Hades? If we believe that our works can save us, then it's like descending into the depths of Hades and rescuing ourselves so that we might ascend into heaven. But that is like bringing Christ up from the dead. It's, it's getting rid of the resurrection, the power to be born again. Jesus said no one will enter into the kingdom unless they are born again. And the only way we can be born again is to have faith in Christ. And so we need Christ. We cannot rescue ourselves from the depths, from Hades, from hell. If we could, we didn't need Christ to rise from the dead. And if we could ascend into heaven by our own works, then we didn't need Christ to die on the cross for us. And so basically, the righteousness of faith says, don't say that you can save yourself because you can't. And so what does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So the righteousness of faith says, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. And I put my faith in Jesus. And this is the faith that is in my heart. And this is the faith that I speak with my mouth. Jesus is the savior. Only he can save. No one can save themselves. You cannot be saved through the law. You cannot be saved through works. You can only be saved through the grace of God, through the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the faith that is in our hearts. And verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is such a powerful statement. This is the essence of what Paul is talking about here. This is how to be saved. And this is, again, not speaking about healing. It's not speaking about blessing. It's talking about heaven and hell, because that is the context that Paul is speaking into. 
salvation. The Jews being saved. I want the Jews to be saved. I pray for the Jews to be saved. He's talking about being born again. And what I love about this is that this is speaking about having a salvation faith that gets you saved instantly. This isn't talking about a process of salvation. This just tells us if you have faith in Christ, you will be saved. And I love that. A lot of people try to turn salvation into a process. And they quote certain scriptures out of context to say we are we are saved, we are being saved, and we'll one day be saved. And all of those scriptures are out of context. I could take you through each one of them and show you what they really mean. They certainly don't mean that we are being saved or will one day be saved because of our works of the law or even because of our works. No, Paul tells us clearly, if you have faith in Christ, you will be saved. And I love that. That is the gospel. That is the truth. Anyone who has faith in Christ will be saved. The moment you have faith in Christ, you are saved because that is the moment you get born again. That is the moment a supernatural work takes place on the inside of you. That's why you can be filled with the Spirit. Being able to be filled with the Spirit is confirmation that you've been born again. And the only way you can be born again is by having faith in Christ. And so when you have faith in Christ, you get born again. And that is when the Holy Spirit can live inside of you. That's when you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now to believe that we'll only be saved in the future... I mean, when do you think that happens? Just before you die and go to heaven? So you've got no more time to sin and do bad works. And if you've lived a good life and haven't sinned much and done good works, then hopefully just before you die, then you'll be born again and then go to heaven. That is, that is a wicked, awful, evil doctrine. That's not the gospel. No, the gospel, thank God. Thank God the gospel is when you believe in Jesus, you get saved. In that moment, in that instant, you get born again. You can be filled with the Spirit. Some people, when they when they get born again, they get filled with the Spirit. Other people, they get born again and later need to be baptized in the Spirit. That's all in the Bible, the book of Acts. I've gone through all of that. But the, the moment you have faith in Christ, that is the moment you get born again, you are saved. That's when you receive the gift of righteousness. That's when your spirit comes alive in Christ, gets spiritually baptized into Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, and seating down on the throne. We're seated in heaven. We were raised together with Christ and seated with him in heavenly place. That happens the moment you believe in Christ. That happens at the speed of light, even faster, the speed of eternity. And this is the glorious truth of the gospel and everything I'm saying, I can back it up with scripture in context. Now, some people do turn this verse into a formula. And so sometimes there are Christians who just want to get lots of people saved. And so they'll go out maybe on the streets or just with their friends and just try to get someone to confess Jesus Lord, you know, and, and they'll, they'll try to get them to pray a prayer. They'll promise them heaven. Hey, if you pray this prayer with me, and confess Jesus Lord, you'll go to heaven forever. And people are like, well, that sounds pretty good. I, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. I, I literally, when I was in school, one of my friends did that with one of my other friends. He said, hey man, like, what do you got to lose? Just pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven forever. And my, my friend, he was like, wow, really? Like, that's all I got to do and I can go to heaven? All right, I'll pray the prayer. And, and, and so my friend led him in the prayer. And after that prayer, nothing changed in his life. It's like, you know what? 
because he didn't believe it in his heart. And so this isn't a formula. This isn't just get someone to repeat the prayer. It, it doesn't say if we repeat that Jesus is Lord. No, it says if you confess that Jesus is Lord. And that confession, that is the confession of faith. And the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you can't confess, actually confess Jesus is Lord unless you believe it in your heart. So you have to believe it in your heart first, which is faith. You have to have faith that Jesus is Lord. He is Christ. He is Savior. He is God. He is the only one who can save. He is the possessor of the heavens and the earth. He is the judge. You know, he is the Lord. And you have to believe that he is Lord in your heart before you can confess it with your mouth. Just confessing it with your mouth does nothing. It doesn't do anything. Okay, this confession is the confession of faith. And so you believe it in your heart and you confess it with your mouth. But it's not a formula. And so some people say, oh, no, like, you know, you have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you don't confess with your mouth, like you can believe it. But if you don't confess, you can't be saved. And I just think, well, what about people that can't speak? What about people that don't have a tongue? Maybe some people had throat cancer and they can't talk and you witness to them and they suddenly they believe in Jesus and they, they, they're trying to receive Christ. And you're like, I'm sorry, you can't be saved because you, you're unable to confess with your mouth. And so the Bible says here, the formula is you believe and then you confess. And so there's nothing I can do for you. Like, that's weird. That's, that's ignorance of scripture. Okay. The most important thing is that someone has faith in their heart, okay? When someone has faith in their heart, they will confess with their mouth. They will do certain actions in this life because they have faith in Christ. And so salvation doesn't come just by confessing something, just by repeating something. No, salvation comes by believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And some people say, oh, no, no, that's not the formula. No, you no, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and then in your heart you believe God raised him from the dead. No, in your heart you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and that he died for your sins and that only he can save you. This is, you believe the gospel, and that's what saves you, okay? In Acts chapter 10, Paul went to Cornelius' house and he preached the gospel to his whole household, lots of people. And says, while he was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them. So what happened? While he was preaching the gospel to them, faith arose in their hearts. They believed the gospel. And none of them, it doesn't say that they confessed anything. They just believed and the Holy Spirit suddenly fell on them. And, and Peter was surprised and all the Jews that were with him were surprised because these were Gentiles and the Holy Spirit was falling on them. It means that they had gotten saved just at the preaching of the word. And so there was no formula. Oh, come forward, repeat this prayer after me. You know, I'm, I'm not against having altar calls and bringing people forward. Those can be very powerful moments, but we need to do them properly. We, we need to understand it's not about coming forward. It's not about just saying with your mouth. It's about having faith. Okay. And then verse 10, for with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Okay, again, we must be careful we don't turn this into a formula. Because that's what religion is. 
Religion is a formula. And we're like, did I do it properly? Did I believe? And did I say, I mean, which do I do first? Do I speak? Do I believe? That's, that's formula. No, we need to understand what the Word of God is saying here. And the Word of God, it's speaking about your heart and it's speaking about the overflow of your heart, the confession of your heart. And so if you're confessing Christ with your mouth, it means that you believe it in your heart. Okay, And if you believe it in your heart, that's when you get born again. And so we mustn't make this a formula. But look at something else here. I mean, I, I love this. This is very important. He says, with the heart, one believes, okay, because that's where our faith is, in our heart. And it's not, obviously, it's not talking about your heart. It's talking about your inner being, your inner person. That is your innermost person. That is your belief center. That is the core of who you are, your values, your beliefs. And when faith comes into that place, your innermost being, your core of values and belief, when that is changed to accept Christ and believe in Christ, that is when you have faith. That is faith, faith in the heart, faith in your innermost being. And so it's not just about mental assent. Uh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe he was a real person. Yeah, I believe. No, faith, faith isn't mental assent. Faith is an inner belief and an absolute knowing. And so that is where faith is in your heart. And so it says, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. Okay, one believes and is justified. And this is justification by faith. It's not one lives a whole life of good works and then is justified. No, one believes and is justified. Um, the King James says, in the heart, one believes unto righteousness. So it's through your faith, that is what brings us into this righteousness. This is, that's what brings the gift of righteousness in our life. One believes unto righteousness. So through my faith, I am made the righteousness of God. I have been justified just as if I never sinned and credited with the righteousness of God. And that all happens simply by my faith. And then it says, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that is the confession of our faith. And so we're believing in our heart and we're confessing it in our mouth. We're confessing it because we believe it. And so it is this faith. It is this believing that saves us. And so I love here also that the Bible puts somewhat of an emphasis on our response. God doesn't just grab unsuspecting people and just force the gift of faith into their heart. And then all of a sudden they just believe and then they get saved. Like, like there's some kind of random cosmic lottery system. You know, there's people that teach that, that, that we're all depraved, so depraved, and no one can believe and have faith unless God makes us have faith and makes us believe. But that, that's not what the scripture is saying here, and that is not what the scriptures actually teach. I, I do not believe in that kind of stuff at all. I actually believe that is false teaching. Man is depraved. Man is fallen. But man is not utterly depraved. People have the ability to hear the gospel. And there's some people that are, yes, much harder and resistant than others. And there's some people that are more open. And that has a lot to do with their upbringing, what they're exposed to. It's not God's hardening hearts and God's softening some hearts. No, a lot of that's just got to do with the environments that we grew up in. You know, if you grow up in a family of atheists and your dad hates God and he curses God and he mocks God and he mocks Christians, you're probably going to find it really hard 
to hear the gospel from a Christian as you grow up. You're probably going to be mocking as well. And so you're going to be someone who's a little bit harder to reach. But if you grew up in a family and they sent you to Sunday school and they were very open to God, you're going to be a lot softer and more open to God. It's got nothing to do with God hardening hearts, softening hearts, God choosing them, not choosing them. And so I don't see in the scripture where it's saying that God just puts the gift of faith in people's hearts. I see in the scripture where the gospel of this word of faith is being proclaimed everywhere and people who hear it and understand it, as we're going to see a bit later, they respond to the gospel by believing it, by submitting to the righteousness of God, like the Pharisees. If they would hear the gospel and then submit to the righteousness of God, they would get saved, like Paul got saved, Peter you know, on the, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. They heard the gospel being preached and they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, you know, repent, change the way you think, believe on Jesus and you will be saved. And so they didn't just receive some gift that made them all saved. No, they had to hear the gospel and then say, what must we do? Believe, believe in Jesus, have faith in Jesus. And so they put their faith in Jesus and 3,000 got saved. What did they do when they put their faith? They submitted to the gospel. They obeyed the gospel. They surrendered to the righteousness that comes through faith. They stopped trying to establish their own righteousness and they surrendered to the gift of righteousness. And so they received the gospel into their heart. They believed and they confessed with their mouth and they were saved. And that's what saves them or that's what saves us. In verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so that's speaking about salvation because it's literally just said, if you believe in your heart, confess about you will be saved. And so anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, will not suffer shame, will not suffer wrath, will not suffer condemnation, but actually will be saved. And I just love that it says everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So that tells me that everyone can be saved. Everyone. People say, oh, no, God's chosen some, a certain few. You know, No, the Bible says whoever. Oh, well, uh, whoever, they are only the ones who God has chosen. That, that is just a weird, foul doctrine. And it's a fatalistic doctrine. It paralyzes us. What's the point of preaching the gospel? And so I just love that it says everyone who believes in him. That means the gospel is for everyone, everyone, anyone, everyone, whosoever, everyone who believes in him. So you have to believe in him. You're not, universalism is not true. It's not everyone is just saved. No, everyone who believes in him will be saved, will not be put to shame. The Bible can't get any more clearer than that. You've literally have to resist it and reject it in order to go with universalism. You've got to twist the word Stretch the word, bend the word in order to fit with your preconceived bias and agenda, which is, I just want to believe everyone is saved and I'm not going to believe anything other than that. And so whenever I read the word, that's all I'm going to see. Well, you can believe that if you want, but you are ignorant and you're not believing the truth. And yes, what a nice concept, what a nice thought that everyone is just saved because of Jesus, because it's just his grace. His grace saves everyone. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. And everyone's just saved. No, there's people that don't have faith and that haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. They're still trying to establish their own righteousness and they're not saved. And because Paul 
grieves for them. He says, my heart is, I wish that they would be saved. And so they're not saved. And so universalism, that everyone is saved, is an absolute lie. And it's actually robbing people of their urgency to preach the gospel. And we're going to see later, there is a great need to preach the gospel in order to see people saved. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is just awesome. God, Jesus is the same Lord of the Jew and the Gentile. And there is no distinction. And I just love that. And that's not God demeaning the Jewish people and saying that they're not important to him. And it's not God demeaning the Gentiles and saying they're not important either. Because sometimes there can be a little bit of a racist thing going on. And I love the gospel. It gets rid of racism. It gets rid of elitism. It gets rid of one nation more chosen than the others. No, Israel was important in God's purpose of election. That God was bringing salvation to mankind through Israel. Jesus came through the Jewish people, the chosen people. But it doesn't mean that the Jews are more special to God and more favored and more advantaged than the Gentiles. No, we're going to see. We're going to see later that they're not more advantaged. And so Paul asks in Romans 9, has God's word failed? The the promise that God gave to Abraham, that he will make his children as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and that they will be blessed and through him all nations will be blessed. Like has God's word failed because natural Israel had rejected Christ and weren't saved? No, because being a child of God is through faith and not through pedigree or birthright or performance. And so I love that. The gospel has gone out to all the nations of the world. And this is God's election. God's election isn't who has God chosen. He's chosen some. He hasn't, he hasn't chosen others. No, God's election is nations. He chose Israel first and then through Israel Christ dying and rising, through that, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's God's election. And so God's election actually isn't exclusive of some. It's inclusive of all. And so everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so right there also, you can see that there is a response that is required. We need to use our free will to respond to the gospel. God has given us free will. We're not robots. No, we have to submit to the righteousness of faith. God doesn't force salvation on anyone. He doesn't force the gift of faith on anyone, the gift of grace on anyone. No, we have to call on the name of the Lord. We have to put our faith in Jesus. We have to hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and respond to the gospel. I believe in a sovereign God. I believe that God knows the beginning and the end. I believe God has decreed the beginning and the end. But God has also decreed the means by which his purposes come about. And some of the means are faith, are prayer, are preaching the gospel. Okay, God's divine sovereign purpose was that Israel would come out of Egyptian slavery after the fourth generation And that generation would be the generation to go into the promised land. He said, I will take them into the promised land in the fourth generation. But that generation didn't go into the promised land, even though it was God's divine decree and purpose and plan and choice 
They didn't go in. Why? Because of unbelief. They saw the giants in the land and they went into unbelief. And God said there was an evil heart of unbelief. They should have believed God. They should have had faith. They should have responded to God. God had delivered them, done mighty miracles, done so many things. God was with them. I mean, mighty pillar of fire and a cloud canopy to cover them. Supernatural things. They should have trusted God. God said, I will give you the land. They should have just believed. And yet they saw the giants and they went into fear. And God said, because of your unbelief, this generation will not enter into the promised land. And and he waited 40 years for that generation to die out. And there was the next generation that went in. And yet it was God's divine plan and purpose for that generation to go into the promised land. And he had prophesied it hundreds of years previously. And this shows us just because something is God's divine plan purpose and plan doesn't mean it's automatically going to happen. It requires human partnership. It requires the means by which his purposes come about, which is human partnership and faith, faith in God. Some things won't happen unless you pray for them to happen. That's the whole purpose of prayer. And we see it in the New Testament. Paul asks for prayer. And there were times when they did pray and there was an earthquake. God shook and God answered their prayers. And so my point is, which we're going to see in the next few verses, is that God doesn't just randomly choose some people to just get saved. No, you have to hear the gospel and you have to respond to the gospel and you have to put your faith in Christ. And so everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so Paul shows us here very clearly, in order for someone to call on the name of the Lord, in order for someone to believe in Jesus and to call on his name to save them, they first need to hear the gospel. And so I love this because this describes how things really are. So if you listen to teaching that emphasizes a lot on predestination and election and we don't have free will and everyone's depraved and no one can get saved unless God just puts the gift of faith in them, that'll just mess up your whole understanding of this, of the gospel, of evangelism. In fact, what is even the point of preaching the gospel If whoever is determined to get saved is just going to get saved. There's no point in even preaching the gospel, for being persecuted for preaching the gospel, for giving your life to preaching the gospel, if they're just all going to get saved. It it doesn't even make sense. No, this shows us the process. In order for someone to call on the name of the Lord, to put their faith in Christ, they need to hear the gospel. In order for them to hear the gospel, someone's got to go and preach the gospel to them. In order for someone to preach the gospel, someone's got to send them to preach the gospel. Now, Jesus has commissioned us and sent us to preach the gospel all over the world. And so that's why Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, if everyone is just saved, then who cares about the feet of these people who bring the gospel, who bring good news? Who cares? Everyone's just going to be saved. Or if God sovereignly decreed everyone to be saved, who cares about the beautiful feet of those who preach? They're not beautiful. They're pointless. No, Paul is saying, no, their feet are beautiful because they're bringing good news. They're coming to show people how to be saved. And this is so important. This is so crucial. This is so vital. Any 
theology or doctrine that gets rid of this and gets rid of this kind of urgency is a foul doctrine. It's a false doctrine. It's not a doctrine that Paul believed in. Paul had anguish over those who weren't saved. And he gave his life for preaching the gospel that people might be saved. And then he says in verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so I believe this is speaking about Israel during the time of Jesus. They did not receive Christ. He was there preaching the gospel and they didn't hear it. Remember, Jesus said, blessed is they who has ears to hear and eyes to see. And even though Jesus was there amongst them preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, of how to be saved, they couldn't see it. They couldn't hear it. They didn't believe it. They didn't obey it. And yet they heard it. And that's actually taken from prophecy of Isaiah when he's speaking about the coming Messiah and those Jewish people who were there at the time. And it's describing these Jewish religious people who have stubborn, hard hearts of unbelief that refuse to see the gospel. It's because they're blinded by the law, by the veil of the law. And so they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. And so even though they've heard the gospel, they haven't obeyed the gospel, they haven't believed the gospel. And then Paul says in verse 17, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so he's speaking about faith for salvation. How does faith for salvation come? It comes from hearing the word of Christ. That is the message of Jesus. That is the gospel of Jesus that only Christ can save. You need to put your faith in Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. He rose from the dead. You need to receive him in order to be born again. And so faith comes from hearing, but you need to be hearing the gospel of Jesus, the word of Christ. And so there's no use in hearing the law and faith's not going to come from hearing the law and hearing Moses. Faith comes from hearing the message of Christ. And that's the problem with Israel. They would not hear the message of Christ. Even though they heard it, they did not hear it. They refused to hear it. In other words, they refused to value it. They refused to believe it. They rejected it. They heard it, but they rejected it. And so in order to have faith, you need to hear the word. But what is the word? You need to hear the word of God, the word of Christ. It is only by believing the word of Christ, the gospel, that you can be saved. And in order to be saved, you have to believe the gospel. Now, that doesn't make it a work. A lot of people say, oh, no, if, if faith isn't a gift, then, you know, then faith is a work. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. No, grace is the gift. Faith is our response to the gift. Faith is us believing the gift, receiving the gift, accepting the gift, acknowledging, the, confessing the gift, surrendering to the gift. It's obeying this gospel message of Christ and having faith. And so the Bible doesn't teach that faith for salvation is this gift that God just mysteriously gives us. No, the Bible teaches that Grace is the gift that we receive through faith. So grace is not a work. It's not something that we work for and we earn. It's something that we receive through faith. That is the gift. Some people confuse Ephesians chapter 2 and they say, no, grace and faith, that's the gift. And I just, I don't believe that that is correct. Because the Bible doesn't actually teach that salvation faith is a gift. 
Now, God can open our heart and God can unlock our heart and the Holy Spirit can help and people praying for you can help you to open your heart. But you have to receive the gospel. You have to believe the gospel. You have to surrender to the gospel. You have to obey the gospel. God doesn't make you do that by just putting some gift of faith inside of you and then making you believe. No, no, that, that's, see, that's what that belief leads to. If you believe faith is a gift, then you are getting rid of free will. You're saying that there's no such thing as free will. You're saying that God just puts the gift inside of you. No, we actually need to receive the grace of God. How much more will those who receive the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness reign in this life? You have to receive it. And if you believe that faith is a gift, then that means that God only gives his gift of faith to those that he chooses. So then you're believing in some lucky draw, some cosmic lottery system of salvation that God ha- God's just chosen some and he hasn't chosen others. And God just gives the gift of faith to some, but he doesn't give it to others. That, that's where that doctrine leads to. If you believe that faith for salvation is a gift, we're saying that free will doesn't count for anything. And we're saying that God has elected some to be saved and others to go to hell. That, that's what we're saying. No, the truth is, Faith isn't the gift. Grace is the gift. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace. Through faith. You have to have faith in order to receive this grace. And so faith isn't a work. Faith is actually humility. Faith is actually surrender. I'm surrendering to the grace of God. I'm not trying to earn my salvation. I'm surrendering. I'm receiving the gift of righteousness. And how do I receive it? I just believe in it. It's like Abraham. God promised him all these blessings and Abraham didn't deserve it. And yet he just believed God. And because of that, God credited him with righteousness. And so God promises us grace and salvation and eternal life. And what do we do with that? Do we reject it? Oh, I'm not worthy. I haven't done enough to earn that. Or do we just surrender to that truth, to that word and say, yes, I believe that. I receive it. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. We save by grace through faith. But that faith is not some random gift. That is personal faith that we must have. Otherwise, God violates our free will. And he's a monster that's only chosen some to be saved and others to not be saved. No, God desires that all repent and come to a knowledge of Christ. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God said to Abraham, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. Not just certain individual people. No, all nations. The gospel is for every single human being. And that is why we need to be like Paul and go and preach this gospel to the outermost parts of the world. Because how will they call on the name of the Lord if they do not hear the message of Christ? And how will they hear if we do not go? And so I believe that this is the truth. And what the Bible teaches. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. In verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And so basically, Israel doesn't have an excuse that, oh no, we haven't heard. We never heard the gospel. No, they they heard the gospel. And it's the saying here is, no, the, the message has gone out. They've heard it. It's rung out. And so they don't have an excuse 
for not hearing. And verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And that's the problem. They heard, but they didn't hear. They didn't understand. And it's not because the message was confusing. No, it's because they didn't want to understand. They were ignorant. They were blinded by the veil. They wanted to pursue a righteousness of the law. They didn't want to submit to faith. They couldn't understand faith. What? You mean I can just be saved and I don't have to do anything for it? No, that doesn't sound right. No, I need to earn my salvation. I've got to work to be saved. And don't tell me that, no, we're just this free gift, free grace. Surely I have to help God to save me. No, what is this Jesus person? He did it all for me and all I got to do is believe. No, what? I can't hear that. That's garbage. That's rubbish. So they, they heard the message, but they couldn't understand it. They didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So this is actually Moses prophesying about the time of the Messiah coming, that Israel would reject the Messiah. And so the gospel would go out to the Gentile nations and they would receive it and be saved and, and receive the blessing of Abraham. And this would actually make the Jews jealous. God says, I will make you jealous by Gentile nations. Those who are not a nation. Speaking about the Gentiles. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And this is God through Moses prophesying over Israel. That they think that they're God's covenant people. And heirs of the blessing because of their works. And their law. And their birthright. And so Israel was slaving away for God under the law and under works and trying to earn the kingdom, trying to earn the blessing. And for years and years, slaving under this heavy yoke of the law. And then come the Gentiles and all they do is have faith in Christ. And all of a sudden they're getting saved and blessed. And they're like, this isn't fair. This isn't right. That'll make the Jews jealous. And that's what Moses was saying here. Verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And so even Isaiah, he was also, this is a prophecy about when the Messiah comes and how the Jews would be in unbelief and reject Messiah. And then the Gentiles would receive Messiah and be getting saved. And it's just contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles that the Jewish people were striving to find God, to seek God through the law, through animal sacrifices, through works. The Gentiles weren't even seeking God. We're just off doing their own thing, following foreign gods. And then all of a sudden the gospel rang out as Christ was raised from the dead and the gospel went out to the Gentiles and it went and it found them and it preached the gospel to them and they were getting saved. And Jewish people, they didn't believe that Gentiles deserved God's blessing and God's favor because they're not even a nation. They considered themselves, no, we're, we're the nation of Israel. We're God's covenant people. We're children of Abraham. We are the blessed ones. We're the chosen ones. And so they were relying on their birthright and they were relying on their performance, their law keeping in order to be blessed. And, and because of that, they actually didn't see Jesus and they rejected Jesus, crucified Jesus Christ rose from the dead and the gospel went out to the nation. The, the, the salvation plan of God suddenly now shifted and moved out to the nations. It didn't abandon the Jewish people. 
the Jews were still getting saved. They could get saved. God didn't reject them or cut them off or anything, but they rejected God and they rejected Christ, most of them. And so in all of that, the gospel went out. God's salvation plan wasn't just for the Jews now. Now it included the whole world. That's the promise they had in Abraham. They had it all along. All nations will be blessed through you. And so this is a part of Paul's lament. It's like, wow, the Jewish people, they had everything, had all the promises. Christ came through the Jews and yet they rejected him. But now the Gentiles are being saved. And what a peculiar thing. And even Moses prophesied about this and even Isaiah prophesied about this. Christ, the once for all sacrifice has been offered. And now that law system, Christ is the end of the law. That whole sacrificial system is redundant. It's, it's come to an end. You cannot be saved for it. At least under the law, they could be temporarily covered for their sins. But once Christ has come, there is now no other sacrifice for sins. And so if you willfully reject Christ and continue in unbelief, in, in rejecting Christ, in, in, that's to continue in sin, the sin of unbelief, then there's no other sacrifice for sin that's left. Only a fearful expectation of wrath and judgment and fury. And so the Jewish people now are actually in danger. God hasn't cut them off, but the natural branches have been removed so that the Gentiles could come in, be included in God's salvation plan. And so the Jewish people, you could say they've been cut off but the reality is, if they have faith in Christ, then they will also be included in salvation. And that's what chapter 11 is going to cover and talk about. And these last few verses are actually setting up chapter 11. And so verse 21, the final verse says, But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so what do we conclude from all of this? I believe Paul is basically saying that the Jewish people are missing out on salvation because they're trying to pursue it by works. But salvation has gone out to the Gentiles now and they're receiving it because they're willing to just receive it by faith. And that is what God has preordained since the beginning of time, that salvation would come to mankind through the grace of God by faith, not through works. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves worthy we need to submit and surrender to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus. And so the Gentiles were receiving it and getting saved, but the Jews were missing out on it because they were still stuck in works. And obviously this grieved Paul. And his prayer was that they would be able to hear Jesus and receive Jesus and be saved. And so we're going to see in the next chapter that God hasn't rejected Israel or cut them off. But if they're going to rely on their own works, then they're not saved. And just because they're Israel and of the natural descent of Abraham doesn't mean that they're children of God. It's not your pedigree, your birthright or your performance that saves you. It is faith in Christ. And that really is the essence of everything Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. And actually in the whole book of Romans. It's the essence of the new covenant. And so God hasn't cut off Israel, but most of Israel is not currently saved. And if they are to be saved, then just like the Gentiles, they need to have faith in Christ. 
Hey, this is Ryan Rufus, and I hope you enjoyed this last chapter. Could I ask, if you've been blessed by the Grace Bible Commentary, would you consider making a donation to New Nature Ministries to help support the ongoing work of the Grace Bible Commentary? That would be greatly appreciated. To do that, simply go to newnatureministries.org. Thank you and God bless.